Hello, I'm John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart audio podcast. For more information on Ransomed Heart Ministries, our resources, and events, please visit us online at www.ransomedheart.com. I have a confession to make. I don't like Amazing Grace. There, I said it, and I, I know that I just rushed in where angels fear to tread, but oh, it's true. There's just something that's happened to that song over the years that's made it so religious and creepy churchy. And 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 what's amazing is that verse of, you know, that saved a wretch like me. You know what? Actually, the scripture never uses that phrase. Friends, welcome back to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. I'm John Eldridge and Craig McConnell today, and we're reading through and talking about the utter relief of holiness. Actually, I'd rather you not mention my name. You don't like Amazing Grace, <laughs> the song. It's, it's, I'm not on this podcast. Oh, it's this, so religious. This is John Eldridge solo. Craig is down yeah. the hall, yeah. has no okay, idea. This here, is going on. Here, here's why. Here's why. Um, a couple of things. Obviously, because of its picture of heaven, right? When we've been there 10,000 years singing songs, uh-huh. you don't sing songs for 10,000 years in heaven. And most people don't want to go to heaven because they picture it as this you know, unending church <laughs> service in the sky, right? It's the same reason why they reject holiness. It's the religious pictures of it that have mm-hmm. you know distorted what it really is. Last week, we looked at the compelling goodness of Jesus and and just saw, wow, if that's holiness, the way he loved, his trueness, his kindness, his integrity, well, yes, I want that. And this week, what we want to bring you into is, yes, the grace of God, the amazing grace of God. We want to look into a chapter from the book that talks about the forgiveness and grace that we live under and how it sets us free. But what's so fascinating is in Romans chapter 7, kind of the famous chapter on, you know, wrestling with our failings, what I want to do, I don't do, what I don't want to do, I find myself doing all the time. And that's where that phrase came from, you know, what a wretch I am. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the religious has really jumped on that and goes, right, you are a worm. You are scum. And that proves how amazing the grace of God is. But actually, do you know Paul never actually says that? He doesn't say what a wretch I am. He says, how wretched is this situation I find myself in? And I think everyone can relate to that. It is awful to find yourself failing at the life that you want to live. It is horrible to find yourself trapped in certain habitual patterns of sin and failure. But the beauty is what Paul is trying to say in Romans 7. There wasn't any chapter breaks when he wrote that letter. I mean, he's leading you straight into chapter 8 where he says, oh, no, the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, there is no condemnation now. No condemnation. We're we're not supposed to be singing about condemnation. We're supposed to be singing about the phenomenal love and power of the grace of God to set us free. So without further ado, welcome to our third 
excerpt from The Utter Relief of Holiness. All is forgiven. I had a horrible night last night. I don't quite remember every detail of the dream I had, but it involved our family and my relationship with my sons, and the theme of it was this. I was failing terribly as a father. I awoke in the dark, but the message persisted. You have blown it with your sons. Like an avalanche, the data rushed in. I haven't spent enough time with them. I haven't shown them how to study the Bible. I've ignored warning signs. I missed key moments in their lives. My life has been far more about me than about them. My anger has wounded them permanently. You parents know how quickly the, quote, facts rush in to sentence you and how horrible it feels. I felt sick at heart. And the feeling felt true, as in, it's all true, and so you ought to feel terrible. Lying there in the dark, I decided impulsively to begin a series of actions that would make amends. First, a sort of self-hating repentance with scoops of shame piled on. Oh God, forgive me. What a failure I've been. Followed by a mad rush of mental plans to try and atone for my mistakes by doing what I could to redeem things with my sons. This too felt very, quote, real and appropriate. Except none of it was from God. Not the conviction, nor the repentance, nor the making amends. None of it. The conviction I felt was the hot breath of hell, the accusations of the evil one. He is, after all, called the accuser. The repentance I was being swept toward was the labyrinth of shame and self-loathing he loves to pile on us. And the amends were unnecessary atonements for crimes never committed. Condemnation is not conviction. The name of the slew was despond. Here, therefore, they wallowed for a time, and Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink in the mire. But I beheld in my dream that a man came to him whose name was Help, and asked him what he did there. Then said he, Give me thine hand. So he gave him his hand, and he drew him out, and he set him upon sound ground. And he said unto me, This miry slough is such a place as cannot be mended. It is the descent whither the scum and filth that attends conviction for sin doth continually run, and therefore it is called the slough of despond. For still, as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there arise in his soul many fears and doubts and discouraging apprehensions, which all of them get together and settle in this place. And this is the reason of the badness of this ground. From John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I bring this up at this point in our search because I know the enemy is going to try and stop any real progress or breakthrough. And being the deceiver that he is, His choice means are various forms of false conviction. A woman I counseled years ago suffered profoundly from shame. If you were to listen to her story, you would know why. Throughout her childhood, she lived under a constant artillery barrage of verbal abuse, put-downs at school, rage from both her mother and her father at home. Over time, the verbal assault shattered her heart and destroyed any self-worth she might have had. Shame became her normal. In her twenties, she found Christ, or he found her, 
she became a Christian. But the strongholds of shame continued to operate. As she began to hear messages on holiness, or as Jesus tried to show her something in her life that needed addressing, she fell immediately back into shame. I'm such a horrible person. God is mad at me. I'm a disappointment to everyone. I hate myself. And what is worse, the shame felt legitimate. It felt as if it were coming straight from God Himself. Shame masquerading as conviction. But the fruit of these convictions was never ever fruitful. She felt loads more despair, more self-hatred, but there was never any lasting change, never the beautiful holiness of Jesus. And here is where you will be rescued, friends. You shall know them by their fruit, one of Jesus' favorite tests. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Wow, listen to it again. No regret? There you have it. This will be a great help to you as you pursue genuine holiness. When it comes to looking at our failures, there are two kinds of sorrow. One brings life, the other death. One leaves no regret. The other destroys us. What I felt in the night as a father was simply crushing. The data felt, quote, true, and the sorrow felt, quote, true, but there was no life in them, no hope. It wasn't conviction, but condemnation. It didn't feel like an invitation to change. It was simply and irrefutably a verdict on my life. The shame my friend felt as a woman seemed to be an appropriate hatred of her sin, but in fact, it was merely self-loathing and nothing more. Never once did it bring her closer to Christ or closer to change, quite the opposite. If only she knew this truth. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Romans chapter 8. I cannot say strongly enough how important this will be to you. Condemnation is not from God. The voice of the Father is never condemning. Firm at times, of course, but never condemning. Rather, when God convicts us of sin, it is always with the hope and the invitation to leave that sin behind. God's kindness leads you toward repentance, Romans 2. I know too many times how real the accuser's accusations feel. Too many times have I accepted condemnation as God's conviction. The awful hook about false conviction is that you can feel as if you're hearing from God. If I'm guilty, at least God is speaking to me. The church has practically enshrined this belief. Many Christians think the scriptures talk about what a wretch I am. This has been canonized in the hymn Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And yet, that is not how the scriptures use the phrase. In Romans chapter 7, Paul is talking about how awful it is to find himself wanting to do one thing but doing another, not wanting to do something and finding himself doing it. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. 
And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And so I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Not, I am such a wretch, but rather, how wretched is this horrible quandary I find myself in. Do you hear the difference? How miserable I am, not, what a despicable specimen of a human being I am. Eugene Peterson gets the translation better in our modern language. I realize I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My decisions, such as they are, don't result in actions. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands. But it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? A wretch like me isn't even in the text. Yes, Paul is at the end of his rope. Yes, something has gone wrong deep within him. But rather than turning to self-loathing and condemnation, he is moved to cry out for help. The test is simple. Does the conviction or the sorrow cause us to run to God? Does it produce intimacy with Jesus? Shame never brings anybody closer to Jesus. Self-reproach or self-hatred never bring anybody closer to Jesus. Yes, sin is a mighty serious matter. God is insistent upon our transformation. You bet he is. But listen, sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Romans 6. You are not under law, but under grace. Did you hear that? How will we be set free from sin? Not by condemnation, by grace. All is forgiven. Let's come back to Zacchaeus and the town harlot who crashed the party to weep at Jesus' feet. They were, both of them, very keenly aware of their failures. They knew they had fallen way short of God's goodness. And not only did they know it, but so did everyone else. So they bore the double weight of their own personal shame and the contempt of their communities. And yet, when they encountered Jesus, a man whose goodness shone like the sun, they ran toward him. How could it be? They knew he was merciful. 
they knew they would find forgiveness. As will you. God's promise to us is total forgiveness if we will come to Him and ask for it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9. This offer is for everyone. It is for you and for me, and it is our only hope. We cannot begin to truly face our lives in the light of God's goodness until we know that we are under grace, that all is forgiven. Think of the difference between these two scenarios. Someone whom you love pulls you aside and says, Can I talk to you about something I see in your life? Versus this. Someone you know who doesn't even like you calls you into their office to say, I need to talk to you about your life. Your internal reaction is totally different. None of us wants to be exposed. None of us runs around hoping this will happen. Remember the way we act in elevators? We hide. But in the case of love, you can face your life because you know there is no condemnation. This is how it is meant to be between us and Jesus. Whatever it is you need to face about yourself, it has already been forgiven. You can go there because though the exposure may be painful, who wants to take a look in the mirror? You are under grace. I share this because it is hard to face our sin. The whole thing is booby-trapped with shame, fear, condemnation, dodging, equivocating, and all manner of false conviction. The only way through the slew of despond is this. All is forgiven. Everything. Now come to Jesus so you can get things straightened out. Your concluding thought there, John, it is so hard to face the realities of what's going on in my life and my failures. And yet to have the ability to do that and not get weighed down and crushed with condemnation and shame and that it's all forgiven. It just feels like what the gospel is supposed to feel like. It's, it's Mercy, an invitation. hope. Yes. The hope of change. Darkness being exposed, light flooding in. Yes. Yes, yes. yes. Again, friends, there's a reason that I titled the book The Utter Relief, The Mm. Utter Relief of Holiness. We can face these things in our lives. We can look with the grace of God and by the guidance of the Spirit of God. We can look at our lives and we can invite Christ in to bring about the change that he wants to bring in us. Again, friends, and why? Because God's intentions are to make you whole and holy by his love. Because you need this. Holiness is the healing of your humanity. And it is the strength Mm. of your life. The amount of strength you have to endure the trials, to navigate the storms, Mm -hmm. and just to live in this world that comes from holiness. Mm. Hope you've enjoyed our excerpt today. And again, the book is out now. And I just urge you, if you begin to dive into this, you're not going to regret it. So available wherever books are sold and also on our website at ransomedheart.com. 